So this is a little bit of a bigger section than we normally cover in one week, but um, there is one major idea that is being communicated here, and so I think it's worth reading a little extra. Um, I'll just start off with, I, this past week, um, Philip introduced me to this wonderful podcast, and I was listening to it, and the guy made a really important statement that has been very convicting to me. He said, um, we can't just tell people that we believe the Bible. He says, everybody says that. Um, you know, so people who believe in infant baptism versus immersion, people who believe in all the different theological ideas, whether you believe in original sin, which is a lot we're going to talk about this morning, or those who don't, everybody answers that question the same. They all say, well, I just, I believe the Bible. And so we have to be more specific than that. Um, and so when we get to things like what we're going to read this morning and trying to understand it deeply, uh, we have to be willing to make more precise statements than that. And I'm very guilty of just like running around telling people, they're like, well, what, what denomination are you? What are you this or this or that? And they think, well, I don't know. I don't really ascribe to it. I just believe the Bible. Um, but I think we have to be clear about what we mean when we say that. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. This is a longer section, but it's kind of split up into three different parts. Um, so Paul gives us kind of this introduction to the comparison of Adam and Christ. And then he contrasts the two in verses 15 and 17. And then he compares them in the last four verses there. Um, and so he brings them together and he's making, a lot of, he's making a lot of statements. And there's some things that we'll have to explain. But let's look at... This first section, verses 12 to 14. This is what he says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So very beginning here, um, it's... It's really interesting because he gives us a statement and then he doesn't, he doesn't finish him. He doesn't finish this idea, right? He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and then he sort of continues on this rabbit trail. Like, he doesn't, you would think that he would say, just as sin came into the world through one man, the next statement would be, righteousness has come through the world through another man, right? I mean, he doesn't, but he doesn't tell us that. He doesn't explain the other half of this argument that he's going to make. At least he doesn't do it yet. He completes it eventually, and I don't know about you, but it like gives me a little bit of comfort to think that Paul was a little bit ADD, right? He's like, he starts off on an idea, and then he's like, wait, but i got to follow this. And then he just kind of goes down a rabbit trail for quite a while um, before he gets himself back to it. And so it's really important, these ideas that we see here. Um, there's a couple of little things that I think are worth pointing out before, because really they, they help us to understand the big idea. Because here is the big idea, and this is the idea that we don't like is that we are all born with original sin. We, before we, became under the, before we came under the federal head of Jesus Christ, we were under the head of Adam. Because of Adam's sin, we are guilty. That is what Paul is communicating to us. And we read that, and we think, that's not fair, that's not just, I don't like that, I would do it differently. And guess what? What you would do differently is not really important, because this is what God says he does, right? This is how God has laid us out. This is how God treats humanity. We like to think of ourselves on an individual, individualistic basis, and God doesn't view humanity that way. 
He views us as a group, and he explained, and Paul explains that very clearly here. Um, but before we get into this big idea, let's look at a few things, because this one is really, really important. He gives us the order by which things happen. Sin came into the world first, and then death comes after. Death spreads to all men because of sin. It is the only reason that death entered into this world. If sin had never entered in, presumably Adam and Eve, Moses and David, and all these guys would still be alive. Because death is only a reality because sin entered the world first. Death is a punishment. And it's really interesting because when we go back to Genesis, what is the punishment that Adam receives for his sin? What is the punishment that Adam and Eve both receive, right? They're removed from the garden. Now, Eve's childbearing is, is increased and Adam's working the ground is increased. But a lot of the times we like to think that the punishment is that they have been kicked out of the garden. But what is in the garden? The tree of life, right? So actually being removed from the, from the garden is not the punishment. The childbirth, the working the land, that's the punishment. But it would have actually been horrific for them to stay in that garden. Can you imagine living forever in the state in which you live? I look forward to the day when I get to die and I get to be in heaven with the Lord, right? It's a kindness that God removes them from the garden, that they don't have access to the tree of life forever, that they don't live forever. So death is a consequence of sin, and at the same time, in our current state, it's a kindness. Now, one day, we will come to a place where we don't die, but what else is true in that? We don't sin. We don't get sick. That's the only reality in which death is not a kindness for us, is that we don't have any more sin. We don't have any more sickness. We don't have any more pain. And so it's important to see this, right, that it comes in a proper order. And secondly... Why isn't Paul blaming Eve? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. He's speaking of Adam very clearly, yet Eve ate first. Why is it that Paul is looking at that situation and saying sin and death have come into the world through Adam and not through his wife? Well, we have an authority structure that exists on planet Earth, right? God has appointed men head of the household. Not because we are smarter than our wives or that we are somehow better, but that God has, has created an order in which he wants us to operate and he wants us to exist. The fact that Adam stood by and didn't stop his wife from eating, knew what was going on, knew it was sin, and just sat there quietly, he is the one to blame. I've been going through this elder nomination, the elder examination with the candidates that, you, that have been put forth. And this is a big one. This idea of leading your household well. And it came out as I was talking to some of the guys this week and I was reminded that men, you are leading your household. 
Now, if you think, well, I haven't been doing Bible study and I haven't been praying with my family and I haven't been doing the things that I know are good and I haven't been leading them towards the Lord, so I must not be leading them. It's not true. You're leading your household. You're leading it either into nonsense, sin and death or whatever, or you're leading it towards the Lord. But men, you are leading your house, either in a good way or in a bad way. You don't get to say, well, these last six months, I haven't been leading because I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to be doing. No, you're leading. You're just not leading them the right direction. Adam is the reason for sin entering the world because he was supposed to be in charge. He was supposed to stand up and, and lead his wife and he doesn't do it. That doesn't mean like, oh, well, then he just wasn't leading. No, he led her into sin by keeping his mouth shut. By not speaking up. By not doing what he was supposed to do. This is why Paul says that sin has come through the world through one man and not through Eve, even though she ate first. Because I think Adam's sin occurred before Eve ate the fruit, right? That he didn't stop her. That he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Now we see this big point, right? Thirdly, we see the headship of Adam to all mankind. Now this is, once again, it's not an idea. I mean, how many of you like sit around thinking and contemplating the idea of federal headship under Adam or under Christ? This is not terms that we use often. These are not things that we talk about very often. But this is what this is about. There is an actual doctrine called the federal headship. And understanding what that even looks like, what that means, is really important. right? Paul spends a significant number of verses here explaining what he means with the federal headship about being under Adam or being under Christ. And it's extremely important. You see, Adam had one law. Not to eat of the tree of knowledge. Right? He, God explicitly told him, look, you can eat of every tree, but there's one in here that you cannot eat from. And he knew that if he ate from it, God told him, if you eat from it, you will die. Right? He, this is explained to him quite well, quite simply. He understands it perfectly. But what about Cain? Do we have anywhere in the Bible where God comes to Cain before he murders his brother and says, hey, you're not supposed to murder people? Or what about the end of chapter 4 with Lamech, you know, who is doing all these horrific things? He's bragging about it. Do we have anywhere in the Bible where it tells us that Seth or Cain or Abel or Lamech or any of these others, right? Go to Genesis chapter 5 with me. You see, remember, sin comes first and then death. And Paul makes this argument that where there is no law, Sin is not counted, right? He says that in the passage that we read. And yet, we don't, at least we don't have record anywhere of anybody after Adam before Moses or receiving specific commands. And yet, if you look at chapter 5, which none of us ever read, right? Because it's just a bunch of names over and over and over again. But you look at the end of every paragraph, 5. Adam, right? He dies. Then look at verse 8. He lists off Seth and his descendants, and he died. And then you look at 9, you look at the end of that paragraph, and he died. And over and over and over again, they died, they died, they died. That's what's going on here. There's a point being made. Everybody is dying. Paul says death is a product of sin, and yet we have no record that these people have received any law. 
Paul is making a point that we are under the headship of Adam in our sin. In other words, that we have original sin, that from the moment that we are born, we are sinful. It's not a sin of imitation. It's a sin of prescription. We do it. It's not that, oh, we're sinful because we acted in the way that Adam acted. We are sinful simply because we were born. We are under the headship of Adam. We are sinful. All of these people died without the law because they are under the headship of Adam. Now, it's not to say that they were innocent. Lamech is far from innocent, right? Cain is far from innocent. Paul also says, verse 12, right? Death through sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. Every single one of them. Every man through human history has sinned. But here's the problem is that we don't see this and we don't understand it the way God does. Look, look back, Old Testament again, Joshua chapter 7. Probably familiar with what's going on at the beginning of Joshua, right? They cross the sea. I mean, they they cross the Jordan River. They're there. God is giving them a command. They go into Jericho, and we love that story, right? They're marching around the city. They're blowing the trumpets. They're yelling and screaming, and the walls fall down. God is victorious. Everything is great. What happens right after that? A little guy named Achan, right? We all probably remember that name. Who is Achan? What does he do? He keeps some of the spoils from Jericho that he was not supposed to keep. Now, did everyone in the nation of Israel do this? No. One guy named Achan, look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Achan. No. What does it say? The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The entire nation is guilty because of Achan's sin. And God punishes the entire nation of Israel because they go out to fight at I, right? And they lose. And Israelites die because of the sin of Achan. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Because one person did what he wasn't supposed to. We don't think in these terms. If I sin, God's going to punish me, but that doesn't affect anybody else around me. So my sin is just my own. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. It only matters what I am doing. And this is cultural, right? This is what our culture believes. This is not how the Bible presents us before the Lord. Now, we see at the end of chapter 7, when God finds... Well, I mean, God doesn't find. He knew, right? But he instructs Joshua to root out the person who did this. But even in the punishment, who is all killed? Is it just Achan? His entire family is stoned because of his sin. I'm challenging you. The Bible thinks about humanity. God thinks about us and describes us far differently than we think about ourselves. 
And so when we read in Romans chapter 5, and we read this idea that because Adam has sinned, we are guilty, that gives us pause. We don't like this. But this is what it looks like. We are all guilty because of the sin of Adam. We are all under the federal headship of Adam before we come to Jesus. Now, you might be asking, well then... How on earth is God blaming me? If I was born with the inability to do anything but sin, I have to sin, I can't resist it, there's nothing I can do, why in the world is God blaming me? Well, we are indeed the cause and author of our own sin, whether we can do otherwise or not. Think about it in these terms. There's been like a lot of research in the last 20 or so years about this idea of serial killers. Like, are they born that way? Where, did they have a choice? Could they do otherwise? And you know what? They haven't really come up with an answer. Like, some are saying yes, some are saying no. But you, you notice something? We're not just allowing them to run free. Like, well, it's, you were born that way, so we're just going to... How could we possibly put you in prison? You killed ten people, but you can't do otherwise. So, eh, you, you, can, you can just get to live your life freely. Those people are in prison, right? They are facing the consequences. They are facing the justice behind what they did, regardless of whether they could help it or not. That's not the point. You do something horrific, we sin, and we face the consequences for it. So sin and death have entered the world through Adam and has corrupted every human being. Except one. Except Jesus. Here's another side note, theological side note, because in case you, theology is really important. That's kind of a weird word in our world or our society. We think, ugh, I don't like that. I just, I want to love God and I want to love people, right? How many churches have you seen with like, that's their slogan? That's, the, that's all we care about. We're going to love God and we're going to love people. Yeah, but, it, but if you don't understand like the, the inner workings of the Bible, then we miss out on things. For instance, there are lots of people who say, ah, virgin birth, that doesn't make any sense. That probably isn't true. But it, who cares? It doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. If Jesus is not born of a virgin from the immaculate conception of God, he is under the headship of Adam. He is a sinful person from the moment he is born. You see, the virgin birth is actually important because it makes it possible for him to actually walk the earth for 33 years, however long it was, and not sin. It's not possible for you and I, but it was possible for him, right? Because of theology. Because there is a thing of the virgin birth. It's important. It matters. If it's not true, everything we believe is, crumbles down on top of itself. So we were under the headship of Adam. And then Paul makes a contrast, right? He says, now... So he compares them at the end of this, right? Verse 14. Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. And then he immediately says... Well, but they're different, right? Don't think of Adam and Jesus as the same, but they're very, very, very different. The free gift is not like the trespass. So now he wants to contrast the two. He wants to make sure that we understand that, that they have similarities, but that they are extremely different. The gift is not like the trespass. Well, 
Why is that? I'm glad you asked. Adam chooses his own way, right? Adam chooses to do whatever he wants to do instead of what God commanded him to do. The sinful choice brought sin into the world and death enters through that sin. And this is applied to everyone who comes after him. And so through his selfishness, all of mankind is doomed. This is a curse that has been given to us by our federal head in sin, right, that Adam has given and passed on to us, and we accept it willingly. What about the gift? The gift is not only not the same, it is the opposite. The gift of Christ is the opposite of the trespass. Instead of selfishness, Christ was selfless. Instead of disobedient, going his own way, he followed the Father perfectly. Instead of the curse of death, Christ has offered us life eternal. You see, the only similarity really is that one man does something and it applies to everyone. And one man does something and it applies, well, as Paul is going to say, to the many. The results are this, is that Adam was once... If you're a Christian, Adam was once your head. He was your representative. When God looked at you, he saw the sin of Adam, he saw your sin, and it was a big jumbled mess. But now, Christ has come. And there is a new head. There is a new representative for humanity if we accept the gift of salvation that comes through Christ. There is a new representative and his name is Jesus. Through him, we are no longer condemned. You see, the same idea applies. The way that Adam's sin filtered down through all of humanity, now the righteousness of Christ filters down through everybody who believes in him. And so the Bible gives us this really clear choice. There's a black and white. Who are you following? Who is your head? Is Adam your head leading you to death and destruction? Or is Jesus Christ your head leading you to life and forgiveness and love. And so the simplest question in the world that we have to ask ourselves is who is the one who is leading you? Are you following Adam or are you following Christ? You see, if you think you do, if you're doing whatever you think is best, if you're following your own instinct, if you're doing all of the things that you think are the right way to do it, that's leading you down a path to death. But if you trust in Christ and if you trust in his righteousness, that leads us to life everlasting. And so I ask you again, who is it that you are following? Who is leading your life? Is it Adam or is it Jesus? So he contrasts the two, right? They are not the same. And now he wants to compare the two in these last couple of verses. And Paul finally finishes his sentence, right? From verse 12, now all the way down to 18, he finishes that first sentence. He, say, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. So just as sin came into the world through one, now righteousness has come into the world through one. And let me, let's just be really clear 
Um, let's not pass by this too quickly. So th- there's this really int- I guess it was last week, I, j- I had this super long conversation with one of my hospice patients. And he was, he was one of those guys who said, I don't believe in God and I hate God. And it's kind of like, you know, really, like what's going on? You know, like he's, he's just, he has, a, I don't know where it all comes from. I, I don't know the guy that well. We had a lot of, we had this really deep conversation. But he came up with all of these things that I've heard a hundred times over my life. Um, you know, he, he talks about, well, it, you know, I've never, I've never, ro- I mean, he literally used these examples. You, they're cliche, but it, I've never robbed a bank and I've never hurt anybody and I've never cheated on my wife. So like, really, is God, God's not going to let me into heaven. If he exists, isn't, isn't he going to let me in? What did, what did Adam and Eve do? Have you ever thought about that? The entire human race is condemned under the head of Adam for What? They took one bite of a piece of fruit that they weren't supposed to. Parents, you got little kids in your home. How often do you let that kind of stuff slide? It's not snack time yet, and the kids go and sneak a bite of apple, and you're like, I'm too tired to deal with it. Like, right? We we have a hard... I mean, on our best days, we probably don't punish that to the same extent that we punish if the kid punches another kid. Right? We look at that and be like, what's the big deal? I mean, seriously, a bite of fruit, like we see it in our world and we just say, eh, eh you know, whatever. This is how serious God is about our obedience. They took one bite of a piece of fruit that God told them, don't do that. That's the one thing you can't do. You can't eat from this tree. They take a bite of fruit and the human race is destined for sinfulness, is destined for hell unless God sends a savior. So the challenge is in that don't Don't let the little things slide. Don't be like, ah, God doesn't really care about that. That's not that big of a deal. This is what has condemned all of humanity. So if even one mistake is enough to send us to hell, and not only one, right? Because, you see, even something as small as this, it's not like, man, God is being mean by doing this to the human race, but we deserve it. We deserve the punishment for something as small and as simple as this. Now, we look in our world and we see these things, or we as parents, we say, I'm going to show mercy, like I'm not going to spank the kids for this or whatever, right? But here's the thing. God is perfectly merciful and he's perfectly just. And he can't allow his mercy to overrun his justice. It can't happen. They both have to be perfectly active, working at the same time. And so because of that, we were condemned. And yet God in his infinite wisdom has found a way, right? Instead of just allowing us to exist under Adam for all eternity and watching us sin and watching us struggle with that, he has sent somebody else. He has sent Jesus to be a new head. He has sent Jesus to lead us away from where Adam has been leading the world for thousands of years. And he says, now there is a new way and it comes through Jesus. Now you might... If you're an astute listener or reader, you might be thinking, wait, what about these statements that seem like Paul is talking about universalism? Verse 18, 
One trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so now one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Seems like every man is going to have life and justification. It seems like every man will be made righteous. So what is Paul trying to say? Well, the answer to universalism is obviously no, right? Because we have lots of other places in the Bible where it talks about we have to believe, we have to repent. It's not, it's not that just because Christ came, everybody, all of humanity, will now be saved. So then, we have to have, what, I mean, what's happening, right? Is this a contradiction? Is he contradicting himself in other places where he tells us that we have to repent and believe? Well, I don't think that's what's happening either. I think Paul is using parallel language, right? Do you ever think about the Bible as a literary piece of work? Oftentimes we look at it, this is God's word and this is revealed to us, which is all true. And at the same time, there's literary features in our Bibles, right? Have, do, you, do you know, the, you guys know what, a, um, I think it's an archetype, I think that's the right, the right word. It, Westerns, who, who likes to watch Westerns? Right? At the end of every Western, right, the good guy, maybe not the, everyone, but the, if the good guy and the bad guy meet on Main Street for a gunfight, who's going to win? Every time. John Wayne, right? <laughs> Even if he's not in the movie, somehow he wins the fight, right? John, the good guy wins that fight. It's a, it's, it's a scene that happens over and over and over and over again, and we know that. And I don't remember if it was a John Wayne movie, but my dad loved to watch Westerns, and I watched the movie with him. And I remember... Somebody who knows him better, I was a kid, but I remember watching this Western movie. It's an old one. It may have been Clint Eastwood. I don't remember. But, like, they come to this scene, and the good guy, I mean, the good guy is the one who gets shot, right? And it turns everything on its head, and it's completely unexpected, and it's not what you think. The Bible does this. Do you guys know the story of of a man meeting a woman at a well? You know how many times that happens in the Old Testament? A bunch. And what happens every time a man meets a woman at a well? Anybody know? They get married every time, right? And not only that, but it tells you a little bit about their character. What does Moses do when he meets Zipporah at the woman at the well, right? He meets her at a well, and they get married, but what does he do? He delivers her, right? She's being harassed by other people who are there, and he comes in and he saves her from the harassment, Isaac, his life is so passive. Does he go to get his own wife from the woman? Does he go to get his own woman from the well? No. Abraham sends somebody for him and finds it for him, right? That's how passive he is. What does Jacob do when he meets a woman at a well? How does he get her? What does he do? Remember, he picks up the stone by himself and throws it. I mean, that's Jacob. That describes his life. He is flamboyant and in your face his entire life. And so you look through the Old Testament and over and over and over again, right? You see the same story happening over and over and over again. And then what happens when Jesus meets a woman at a well? What does she expect is happening? She thinks he's hitting on her, right? The way, because what Jesus even says where is your husband? And she's thinking, this guy wants to get married. And so she's lying about all this stuff. And there's this weird tension that goes on. And then Jesus comes and he says, not only do you not have a husband, but you have been married 
four times, right? And this idea is coming up over and over and over again. And there is this expectation of something that is going to happen, and it doesn't. The Bible uses literary things, and so when, I, when we're thinking about this, we have to understand that when Paul says that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, he is making the comparison, right? He is not telling us that, you, that, that it's universal, but he's using a literary technique. Over and over and over again in this section, he tells us, oh, he, he makes this comparison. Through the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? Through the one act of righteousness, it leads to justification for all men. He is making a parallel statement. He's using a literary technique, not trying to explain to you that everyone is going to be saved because that's simply not true. If we were taking this for exactly the way that Paul wrote it, then only one act of righteousness would have to lead to justification, but we know that's not true, right? Jesus lives an entire life of, of righteousness. It's not just one thing that he does. If that were true, he could have lived an entire sinful life and at the end of it, given up his life for everybody and been able to save them, even though he was sinful. Right? That's not what he's saying, right? So when you look at this, I mean, how many of you have ever, somebody has brought this to you and said, ah, look, universalism, what's the point? Why are we reading the Bible? Why are we evangelizing? Everybody's going to be saved. Says it right there. That's not what he's communicating. So both of these instances, Paul is using literary technique, right? He's just making these comparisons. But what he is saying is that even though you came into the world as sinful under Adam, you can now be made righteous under Jesus, right? He is telling us the simple and true gospel. And then verses 20 and 21, these are beautiful. Because look, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, there's no way on earth that God can save me. You don't know what I've done. If I listed off all the things that I've done, God's grace is not big enough for that. Look at these two verses. If you hear nothing else this morning, look at this. The law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There is no limit to God's grace. If you believe in Jesus, if you repent of your sins, and you have faith in the perfect life that Jesus has led, that he died on the cross, that he is raised from the dead, you can have life, and God has more than enough grace to cover anything you've ever done, thought, or said. His grace is so much bigger than our sin. His grace... If you're... If you're struggling and you're thinking and you're being and you're feeling the weight of your sin and you're allowing it to weigh you down, just rem- you don't even have to remember the whole verse. Just remember that statement. Write it somewhere that you can read it on a regular basis. Grace abounded all the more. Don't ever forget that statement. The grace of God is far greater than anything you have ever done. All of us combined have ever done. The world has ever done. In combination, God's grace is bigger than the sins of this world. That is something to rejoice about. Now, this doesn't give us license to sin. Paul's going to address that in the next chapter. In fact, if you look at verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganoita, right? By no means. Never let that be true. 
This is not to say, well, good, I'm just going to do whatever I want. It's to bring comfort to you in those moments where you have recognized I am a wretched creature. The things I've been thinking, the things I have been doing over the last hour, 24 hours, months, years, whatever it is, God's grace is there all the more. It can overcome anything that you have ever done, said, or thought. God's love and his grace are endless. His fountain of forgiveness never runs dry. And so I ask you this morning, who, once again, who is leading your life? Who has the reins in your life? Is Christ the head of your life? Is he the representation from you to God? Or is it Adam? If you are living unto your own self, if you're living in your own sin, in your own desires and doing the things that you want to do over and above what God is doing, I'm telling you this morning, you need to repent. Let Christ be the head of your life. Stop trying to rule and run your own life because it's never going to go well. It's going to lead you you to death and destruction. Christians, if you're here this morning and the guilt of your sin and the shame of it is weighing you down and it's crushing you, you have forgotten who your representation is in heaven. It's not you and it's not your sin. Let those things go. Let the grace of God wash over you. Let the sin and the guilt and the shame come off of your shoulders and feel the freedom You see, sometimes we have the intellectual knowledge and we, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I am being crushed by the guilt of my sin. You're not, you don't really understand who he is and what he's doing. He's representing you in heaven. God is not looking at you anymore in your sin. He is looking at Jesus. He is your representative. Let that guilt wash away. Let it melt away. Get rid of it. So whether you're a Christian or not, really, the message is the same. Don't let sin reign in your life. Let Christ be the head. Let him be the one who leads you. Let him be the one who frees you of all of those things. And let God sustain you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we want more deeply to understand and to believe and to apply the things that we read in your word. We read things like what we read this morning and it can be difficult. We live in a world and a culture who just denies this idea of representation and yet we have it here. Lord, every person in this room is either being represented before you by Adam, or by your son. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here who is living under this headship of Adam, doing whatever they think is best, Lord, that you would prick their hearts right now, that they would repent and believe in you and have faith and be saved and move from being represented by Adam to being represented by Jesus. Lord, we, we read this truth and we hear it and we, and we allow it to sink in. But Lord, we don't really, we have such a hard time comprehending why on earth you would look at your son and not look at us. That you would choose to allow the righteousness of Jesus come to us. Lord, I don't, I don't understand it. 
I know my sin, and I am not. Why would you do this? I don't, I don't understand it, Lord, but I stand before you so grateful that you have done it. That Jesus represents me and everyone in this room who believes in you. Lord, help us to believe that truth more deeply. Help us to remember that truth when we are feeling down and out, when we are feeling like our sin is taking control, that Christ is our head. Lord, help us to follow him and not ourself. We love you. We have a, a deep desire to be obedient to you, but we fall and we fail in this so often. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Ignore the other things of this world and allow him to lead us and to guide us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things, that we ask these things of you, Father. Amen.